If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Why did Hitler make the fateful decision to invade Poland in 1939? How did Churchill turn defeat at Dunkirk into a victory on the home front? And how did Japan's imperial designs lead to war in East Asia? Today, we're bringing you the second episode of our five-part series tackling the big questions of the Second World War with historian Lawrence Rees. In this episode, Lawrence joins Rachel Dinning to guide you through the early years of the conflict, from Pearl Harbour and Dunkirk to the fall of Tobruk. So we're looking at the early years of the Second World War now. Um, We'll start at the beginning. The Second World War began with the German invasion of Poland. Uh, Why did they make the decision to do this? The reason that they had been talking about beforehand was to recover territory lost in Versailles. Germany used to be completely united along that Baltic coast, and then it was split into East Prussia and Germany. So there was a bit of Germany that was was now a little like an island post the Treaty of Versailles and there's a thing called the Danzig Corridor. Around now, the town is now called Gdansk. It's in Poland now, but it was in Germany uh, prior to the First World War. There was a move to recover that territory. There was a move to recover other territory in Poland that had been German prior to the Treaty of Versailles. So there's a sense of recovery and righting of a wrong that that Hitler is, is banging on about. 
But he's also doing it as part of his great vision of what he wants um, to be remembered for in history. What he wants to do is to create an empire in the East. He's looking to create in the uh, western part of the Soviet Union, in territory topical of today, like places like Ukraine, he's looking to try and create uh, a large German empire. What he wants is what he calls Lebensraum. And obviously, as a famous historian uh, um, called Poland God's Playground, and he did it because of the lo- geographical location of Poland. Poland's um, tragedy in many ways in terms of the suffering that Poland has suffered over centuries is its geographical location. It's trapped between two gigantically powerful countries um, in Russia and Germany. So in order for him to get his empire in the the Western part of the Soviet Union, he's going to have to go through Poland. So Poland is is an absolute, absolute focus on what Hitler wants to do. And so they invade and they invade on the 1st of September 1939 and on the 3rd of September uh, 1939, Britain and France declare war because they'd given guarantees to Poland. What's interesting about that is the British gave guarantees to Poland without any ability to protect Poland. We couldn't stop any of this happening. We didn't send armies to Poland. We didn't do it. I mean, we couldn't actually do, in practical terms, anything about it at all. It's just that we had decided, along with the French, we decided the line in the sand that's it. If he does this, there will be war. And the second thing to think about in the invasion of Poland that I don't think people, uh, I'm not sure it's really known, is that that when I was again taught this at school a very, very, very long time ago, there was a, there was a sort of sense that people had that with the invasion of the Soviet Union that's going to happen in June 1941, this was the war of extermination that Hitler announced. This was a war that was going to actually just be unbelievably brutal. And that somehow prior to that, it had been not exactly a a normal war, but one that fought along more honourable lines. Again, research in the last 40 years has demonstrated that it isn't actually the case. It's It's not going to be as brutal as the war in the Soviet Union, but the mentalities of thinking that you're going in to fight people who... Uh, uh, you're going to treat appallingly was there from the beginning. So you found that in the first few weeks, 16,000 Poles were killed who were, many of them were Jews, members of the intelligentsia, politicians and so on, because what Hitler wants to do is to turn Poland into a slave state. He wants to Germanize some areas of Poland, i.e. make them part of Germany, and the Poles who are allowed to live there are going to be kept as slaves. And deport other Poles to the eastern part of Poland he occupies, where they're, they're essentially going to be not exactly starved to death, but they're going to be treated so appallingly, not going to be allowed to learn to read. Not, I mean, this is, this is not a normal occupation of a country. And the final thing to say about what's happening here is, again, not very well known, which is that people talk about uh, the Germans conquer Poland. They don't. They only conquer half of Poland. Because on September the 17th, 1939, the Red Army invades from the east and takes half of it. Actually, they split it. And what you see from the documents is that the, the Germans and the, and the Soviets got on swimmingly for the most part because they both come from these uh, totalitarian cultures. They both understand each other. They both want to um, uh, oppress uh, many of the people in the countries they're in. And they split Poland between them as part of the Nazi-Soviet pact, 
which has been agreed in August 1939. So actually Poland split up. And the final irony of all this is what Hitler actually wanted was, for many, many years, he wanted an alliance with the British. Actually, that was his dream, I think, in many ways in the uh, early to mid-30s, was that there would be some arrangement with the British. And the reason being that the British Empire he admired. And we forget it now, and it's also very controversial, the idea that we had an empire, but it wasn't to many people then that we we controlled, British controlled India, we had Australia, we had Canada and so on. And it's a maritime empire. And Hitler said this would work out because we had a maritime empire and they wanted a land-based empire. So it's compatible. So the plan would be we get together and the Germans then are free to fight Stalin and Soviet Union. But look what he ends up with. He ends up with, from his perspective, the wrong war because he ends up in a a pact, uh, an alliance in many ways in all but name, but a pact with the people who he actually intended to fight with, and at war with with the people who originally he had thought might be his allies. So from that point of view, it's an extraordinary situation that he's in. And then the next huge event was the German invasion of Western Europe. How did we progress to that point? Again, if, if you follow from what I'm saying, that, the, that actually he is compelled, as he sees it, to invade Western Europe. He's compelled to invade Western Europe because he can't possibly turn east as long as you've got the huge French army and you've got the British army in, in France. You've got this, this great threat on his Western frontier. So he sees it. He's got to deal with that before doing anything else. Many of his generals think he's crazy. In fact, one of them said, this is a mad plan. And the, the reason they think it's a mad plan is because in their memories, they, they all know what happened in the First World War, which is Germany moves into Western Europe and stalemate happens. And then the trauma of the trenches, eventual loss and so on. So why isn't that going to happen again. So there's a real sense of of pushback against Hitler for wanting this. And they start altering the plans of how to do it because it it, it seems to me that there's a realisation that if they just do what they did in the First World War and invade that way, they're going to get the same result. And so um, as the plans start to change, and it's generally credited to a general called um, von Manstein, although it's clear that other people have an input into it as well. They come up with one of the most innovative, extraordinary uh, military ideas in the history of the world, and one of the most absolute risky, and that is to have two army groups. One army group will invade in what you might call the traditional way of invading Western Europe from Germany, which is up uh, through Belgium uh, and then down through into France. But the other army group will invade further south through what many people thought was the impassable forest of the Ardennes in the south and aim for a town called uh, uh, Sedan, which is on a river called the Meuse. And the idea was that once they, if they manage to do that and cross that, then they've got the plains of France and they can speed across them and then trap the British and French armies in this giant, giant, giant encirclement, in this huge pincer movement and win. That's the plan. The reason it's phenomenally risky is because in order to get through the forest of the Ardennes in the south, 
they've got to be strung out along along long roads. And if they're spotted, uh, they're sitting ducks because they're trapped in, in this long line in the forest, but they're not spotted. So they get through and within a matter of days, they're in Sudan, cross the river and then hurrying, hurrying on. And so you find that they invade on the 10th of May, uh, 1940. On the 15th of May, the French prime minister rings Churchill, who has also been appointed coincidentally, he's only becomes prime minister on the 10th of May, the very day that the Germans invade West. Uh, but five days later, on the 15th of May, the French prime minister rings up and essentially says, we've been defeated. Can you imagine it? In five days, 1.8 million French POWs. 10% of the adult population of men of, of France becomes prisoners. And it only takes a few days. It's, it's incredible. So what's extraordinary about the history of the war, I always think, is that people go, uh, who don't know much about it, go, oh, the craziness to invade uh, the Soviet Union. How crazy was he to in, try and invade Ukraine and Russia and so on in 1941? It's absolutely mad. Well, at the time, the mad thing was to do this. Because how on earth would this could this happen? I mean, so you can imagine if you're a German general, you, you're actually going, um, the guy is a genius. I mean, think of the humiliation of the First World War. We had four years in these trenches here. And in a matter of uh, a few weeks, we're in Paris and um, we've won. It's really interesting. But it was in a way a little bit of luck that they weren't Spotted yes. as they were going along those. Yes, those it's roads. a huge risk. It's a sure. risk. It's a gamble. It's it's the most enormous gamble I think. I don't know of a of a gamble of that scale in in history. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we come on to Dunkirk, or Operation Dynamo, if we're going to call it by its official code name, which took place over nine days from the 26th of May 1940 and saw the rescue of some 330,000 Allied troops. Um, what's the significance of Dunkirk in our history? In our history, it's enormous. It's iconic. Um it, it, the reason it's iconic is because of the, the sense of the, the little boats and the, it's looked on as the ultimate story of kind of British pluck, isn't it? That that the, the little boats go over and they manage to rescue these people off the beaches and so on. So it's it's a kind of big heroic event. But as Churchill realised at the time, it's not a victory. <laughs> it's symbolic of a gigantic defeat. Mm. And, and the truth is that um, we may have, rescued 330,000 people, but we didn't rescue their tanks and we didn't rescue their heavy artillery and we didn't rescue everything else. Bear in mind, if 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 you were a German looking at this, you're thinking, well, we've already got, one, as I mentioned, 1.8 million French prisoners of war. So what's the, 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 the 330,000 people without any real armaments, what kind of threat are they going to be in the foreseeable? I mean, so it would have been a good idea to capture them, but it, it, it's not from that perspective such an extraordinary thing as it is from our perspective. And from our perspective, it's like that because it's something to take from this. It's something um, that's inspiring as a story. And it is inspiring as a story. There's no question about that. I'm not saying let's don't feel good about it. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, extraordinary moment in our history. But in the context of all this, the notion that it's a victory Maybe it's a victory of sort, and it was a victory for those people that they did. The, the three hundred thirty thousand people didn't have to spend the next five years in a prisoner of war camp. Absolutely terrific for them, and so on. But it's certainly not a victory in the sense that what the loss was going on in the rest of Western Europe. Sure, and the backdrop here is that this is a high point of Hitler's success. The absolutely, the movement, and then absolutely, yeah. That that what is there is there a greater sign of genius? Suddenly, he's he's lauded. I mean, he's he's a, he's an extraordinary genius. And actually, I'm not saying it was the toss of a coin. But if those troops and tanks had been spotted going through the Ardennes and bombed, the war's over. I mean, it's incredible. The war is over right there and then. And of course, on the 10th of June, Italy declares war on France and the UK. What were their motives? I think that's symbolic of what's going on in the whole context of this, which is that. Another great theme of history and of life is opportunism, which is you do something because you think, okay, I'm going to join that particular bandwagon. And and I think that's partly what Mussolini is doing. He's in a difficult position in some respects in that he was the original fascist dictator who, uh, 1923, was very much a role model in some ways for someone like Hitler and the Nazi party. But by now there's a sense that you know, he's a minor player. Uh, and so he's just, he's moving in because I think there was a very strong sense at the time he declares war in June 1940 that the, the, the war will be over very soon because Britain will make peace. It seemed obvious to Hitler that Britain would make peace. Why on earth wouldn't you make peace? And it's that that I think is the, the key thing we should take away about individuals influencing history is what Churchill did then. Because Churchill coming to power on the 10th of, of May, he has to live through the this defeat of France. He then has to live through, through um, voices in his own war cabinet 
suggesting that maybe some kind of peace deal should be explored or at least explored through third parties with with Hitler or mediated. And I think if we'd, if we'd gone down that route at all, at all, it would have been unbelievably dangerous, unbelievably dangerous. Because once you even start thinking that, then, then the whole morale begins to fracture. And he refuses to. He refuses to, uh, to go down that route. And I think that if you're going to point to a moment of one man influencing the destiny of a, of a country in a war, it's that moment. It's very unfashionable to talk about the great men theory of history, and I don't subscribe to it because um, we're all creatures of our own time and place, and um, uh, there are, we're all influenced by the structures of, of the world and the culture around us. But in this one tiny moment, I think you can point to one person who changes the destiny of a country, because if you can imagine a situation where someone else was in that position who had wanted to explore that piece with uh, Hitler of sorts. And it made sense. It, in many ways, it made sense to a lot of people because what possible chance did we have? Uh, the small island, and he has the control of Poland. He's got control of, of the whole of Western Europe. Italy has now come into the war. America, remember, is not in the war at the minute. He's got, um, he's neutralized any threat from Stalin. I mean, why wouldn't it make sense to actually do some kind of peace deal? It was never his number one priority to invade Britain. There's nothing in Britain for him. There's just more people and lack of resources and enormous risk because um, he didn't consider, you know, they look at, look at how dangerous it is to mount a, a cross-channel invasion. D-Day was years and years in the planning, could only be done once... Um, we had overwhelming superiority in a whole number of different areas. The fraughtness and danger for a German invasion was huge. Not to say he wouldn't have done it, not to say his plans weren't serious with Operation Sea Lion. They were. If he could have got away with it, he would have. So there was a risk. But the risk, um, I don't think, was as great as in many quarters it's perceived even now. Because for his perspective, from his perspective, the best way forward is a humiliating peace that neutralizes Britain. You put in a puppet government here, you have it, you, you, you sink the fleet, you neutralize us. And we would still have a, a horrendous, we would have a horrendous regime here. It would be terrible. It would have been unspeakable and awful, but it wouldn't have been, I don't think, the kind of invasion that you're about to see in Poland or the Soviet Union. Churchill prevented that. He was not prepared to, he said, right, if, you know, they're going to have to fight us down Whitehall for this. And that's not something that was Hitler was enormously enthusiastic about. As I say, he would have. It's not to say it wasn't a real intention possibility. But if you once you understand his uh, mentality and where he's going, it's not a priority. He did not fight the war in order to conquer Britain. He fought the war because he wants a war in the East and he recognizes the threat posed by the British and the French. Sure. So the next major point in the timeline of the early war is probably the Battle of Britain, which begins in July 1940. Um, in your view, how pivotal was the Battle of Britain? It was absolutely pivotal in a number of ways that, apart from what many people think is the most obvious, let me explain. It's pivotal because rather like Dunkirk, it represents, in terms of morale and belief systems, how we can fight back. 
It was extraordinary. Imagine the mentality of the time. You've just witnessed this incredible humiliation in France. Nobody really believed that could happen. The British and the French had more and better quality tanks than the Germans did. There's a sort of myth, a blitzkrieg about the Germans possessing this extraordinary mechanized equipment and so on that they actually, they were still using horses when they're invaded. Yes, they had some mechanized equipment, but they're still using a lot of horses when they're invading France. Um, it's the British who have this great equipment, but we've, we've just lost it all. It's now, it's now the other side of the channel. So what, you know, what kind of nation are we? And what the Battle of Britain showed and the, the Spitfire pilots and the Hurricane pilots and so on showed is that, you know, we are, we are capable of fighting back. We do have a sense of our own nobility and our own honour. And so it was vital from that point of view and also vital because it, it put the final nail in the coffin of any idea that Hitler had that he could invade. Because without, without air superiority, there's no possibility of, of, of invasion. I mean, D-Day couldn't have happened without air superiority over the beaches. So it absolutely managed to, to stop that. And so from that point of view, it's, it's extremely important. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to talk about Operation Barbarossa, which begins in June 1941. Um, why did Hitler launch invasion of the Soviet Union when he was still at war with Britain? Um, what, what was this two-front war, something that he initially would have really wanted to avoid? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, um, and one a lot of people at the time asked him, uh, is particularly his generals. Um, what it speaks to, I think, is what I've been saying throughout, which is his obsession to create an empire in the East. The fact is he's reached a point with Britain where what's he going to do? He, he hasn't got the air superiority needs to mount an invasion. He hasn't got the, the ships necessary to, to do it. Certainly if with Britain uh, still has spitfires in the air, um, also, the weather's suddenly gone bad on him. And once you get to September, it, it's, it's very, very hard to plot a day when the channel's going to be suitable to, to make a crossing. That's, it's no accident that D-Day happened in, in, uh, in June when the weather is normally, it, it's normally better to cross the channel. Um, what's he going to do? And he comes up with this, what we might think is, is bizarre logic, is bizarre logic, but it was the logic he tried to use on his um, generals, which is this. Britain's only hope in this war is that Stalin and the Soviet Union will break their pact with us and ally themselves with them. If we invade the Soviet Union and destroy that threat, Britain's last hope's gone, and Britain will make peace. So you defeat Britain by invading the Soviet Union. I mean, the reason it's bonkers is because Britain's great hope was demonstrably not the Soviet Union. Britain's great hope was America. From the very beginning of, of Churchill's prime minister, he's wooing Roosevelt in America. He's, he's trying to ensure that the Americans become our allies, the great powerhouse of democracy and all. We, without American aid, without American help, we would have been in the most virtually terminal trouble. We weren't getting supplies and help from Stalin's Soviet Union. But nonetheless, that's the logic that Hitler uses. Um, 
also they're in a position whereby they are getting, the Germans are getting uh, aid from Stalin, but of course he could turn the tap off whenever he wanted. It wasn't secure. So you know, instead of having to rely on the person who owns the oil well, why not go and get the oil well yourself? So that's the kind of ideas and logic he's saying. Underneath it, for Hitler, is this huge, huge ideological uh, belief system, a belief system based on hatred and racism. And that is that he believes that the, the Jews still are this horrendous threat. It's a fantasy, but he believes it. Um, he believes that communism, Bolshevism, as he calls it, is this huge threat. Uh, he wants to eliminate that threat. And so there's a real sense that that ideological uh, creed is a, a threat and dangerous, and he's going to do something about it. And also that he feels the Slavs, uh, Slavic people are subhuman. So you put all that together and you've got Slavic people, Bolsheviks and Jews, because there's large numbers of, of Jews in the uh, Western part of the uh, Soviet Union. In his mind, you've got three ideological reasons to deal with this. And you get the resources you need. You get wheat from the Ukraine. And assuming you can get all the way to uh, the Caspian Sea and Baku, you've got oil. So makes sense, doesn't it? On paper, it, it all but makes bit, sense. Except the big irony of it is that he doesn't have the resources to capture the resources he needs. That's going to be one of the central problems that he, he faces in this war. But it's very interesting. He writes around this time uh, to Mussolini and he says, I'm now spiritually free as a result of this invasion. And I think that's one of the most revealing, revealing phrases in the whole thing. He's spiritually free. It's almost like the gloves are oh, at last. I can actually be truly myself. And he calls this a war of extermination from the beginning. From the beginning, they're going in and shooting uh, political officers of the Red Army, the commissars, from the beginning, they're going in and shooting Jews um, uh, who they consider in the service of the party or the state. But that's the bare minimum. In actual fact, they're shooting many more than that uh, in these ghastly, horrible pit killings. Uh, it's just, just appalling. It's unspeakable atrocities from the very moment they go in. And sort of shed that idea that it's just about German pride and reclaiming the you know, what was lost in Versailles and that kind of thing. It's more of an honest... It, it, exactly. Exactly. It's like, at last, we have our place in the sun. What's really interesting is to think of the people he's allied to now in, in, in terms of Japan, Germany, and Italy. And all three of those nations uh, only really broke through in the 19th century. If you look at, say, the British or the French, you know, we, we're moving into India much earlier. We're moving into other colonies and, and so on. But Germany as a nation doesn't become united until the mid-19th century. Sure, and same with same, Italy. Same with Italy. Japan is, prior to the Meiji period, is hidden and, and is not with the West. So each of these countries feels it's not fair that you've got these uh, countries that were able in previous years, previous centuries to develop colonies and empires, we've been denied the chance. And so it's interesting with each of them, what you see is Germany is, is trying to develop an empire in Eastern Europe and the Western part of the Soviet Union. Uh, Italy's trying to develop an empire around the Mediterranean and South into Africa. And Japan is trying to develop an empire in, in Korea and um, China. 
Mm. So is this why J- the Japanese then go on to bomb Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 1941? What was the motives behind that it, action? Yeah, I mean, very much so. And this is something that people don't know or think about enough in this context, which is that the Japanese had been taking part in wars in mainland Asia uh, since the early 30s when they moved into Manchuria, a full-scale war going on in China from 1937. So it's a bit like, it's, it's an interesting question to say, well, when did the Second World War start? We, we all go, 3rd of September 1939. Well, only for us. If you're an American, the war doesn't start until um, December the, the 7th, 1941. If you're a, a, a Russian, the war doesn't start until June the 22nd, um, 1941. If you're Japanese, you go, well, when did the war start? Well, the war, 1937 was big within China we were fighting. So it's part of a continuum. So the Japanese are in this war in China. Um, they then try and capitalize on the destruction of France in 1940. And they move into a bit of what was then called French Indochina. We would primarily call it now Vietnam. So they've moved into North Vietnam. And then in uh, 1941, they moved down right into, or they, they've occupied bits of it. They're gingerly moving in. And they then moved down into southern Vietnam, the southern Indochina, in 1941. The Americans are watching all this. President Roosevelt's watching all this. And they've got understandable disquiet about it. And when the Japanese move into the south uh, of Indochina, um, they go, right, well, we're freezing all your assets in America. This has the effect of denying the Japanese access to oil because uh, uh, the majority of their oil comes from America. And Japan, just like Germany, is not an inherently resource-rich nation. You know, America doesn't need to invade anyone looking for oil. It's got oil. But if you're Germany or Japan, you haven't got any. So you need, in the modern world, access to these resources. Japan was importing them. And once America turns the tap off of that, what are they going to do? They then start talking to the Americans. And now the Americans start saying, we're very unhappy with what you're doing in China. We're very unhappy with your aggression. Well, again, if you're Japanese, the, the, if you're the member of the Japanese government at the time, you're going, well, <laughs> the point of what we're trying to do is the aggression. I mean, we, it's not fair that you, you're America, you're a huge country. You've also got uh, your own um, uh, spheres of influence and so on around the world. It's not fair. We want to have an empire and we're going to have it in China. And now you're saying, you know, stop, just stop. So... What are they going to do? And so they then think, okay, we're going to, what we'll try and do is we want to move south to the Dutch East Indies where there's oil and get oil. But um, we can't do that unless we actually neutralize in some way the threat from America. Because they think if once we start doing that, the Americans are going to maybe even declare war on us. They've also got to move into British Malaya and also Singapore and so on. So they're going to go south in search of oil. Well, we've got to do what we can to neutralize the American threat. So the plan is we'll show them that we're able, we're actually militarily capable by doing this extraordinary thing, which is crossing right away across large sections of the Pacific and bombing them in their 
their fleet in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor, which they do on December the 7th, and they focus on destroying these battleships. But actually, a number of aircraft carrier are still at sea, and it's going to be aircraft carrier that are going to be the determinant factor in the in the naval war in the Pacific. But the fact is, it's a gigantic military miscalculation because they think, and I talked to, I, I, I met um, a Japanese naval officer who, who was involved in some of this planning. And he said, well, we thought that what would happen is that the Americans would be so humiliated, who would lose so much face by this, that they would come to us and say, well, let's try, we will try and try and be reasonable. We see that you're powerful, we'll, we'll try and be reasonable. Well, any greater miscalculation of the American character than that is not possible to make. I mean, what that's revealing about is the Japanese character, but it's not, it's not revealing of the American character. So it was a complete miscalculation. It just absolutely riled, riled them up. That's really interesting. And then Hitler obviously declares war on the USA. Yeah. What were his reasons for this? He wasn't compelled under the pact he had with Japan to do this. He would have been compelled to go to war on behalf of Japan if America had declared war on Japan, but Japan precipitated this. But nonetheless, he, he made it clear that he would declare war. Why? You think to yourself, why on earth? You're already at war with Britain and the Soviet Union, and now you're going to declare war on Germany. Well, again, from his perspective, it made a kind of sense. It made a kind of sense for two chief reasons, I think. The first is that what he'd been witnessing uh, from the beginning really of Churchill in power is how the British had been wooing the Americans and how Roosevelt, most notably at the end of 1940, put forward Lend-Lease, which meant the British could have resources and, and equipment coming from America across the Atlantic. There was also issues of whether escort vessels or American ships in the Atlantic you know, could be torpedoed or not by the U-boats. U-boat commanders were saying, we see a military ship in the Atlantic. I don't know if it's American. I know what we're going to do. It was almost like there was all sorts of problems in trying to hang on to neutrality. So there were instances where, where the Germans had attacked American ships. So Roosevelt was using that to sort of stoke up a sense of, of outrage. And so they were moving that way anyway. And Hitler believed that in, for matters of prestige, you have to be the one who declares, you know, you don't have to war, you know, war declared war on you. But also, I think it was, it was because he wanted to ensure that the Japanese kept fighting and kept the Americans occupied in the Pacific. So therefore, what was important was once the Japanese had actually moved forward into Pearl Harbor and done this, that they don't then on their own bat go, oh, we'll just do a piece and move out. And so arrangements are reached whereby the Japanese and Germans aren't going to reach a separate peace without some kind of agreement. So that therefore they're in it, they're absolutely both in it together. And that combination, I think, means that from his perspective, it's recognised the inevitable. And hopefully the Japanese are going to keep the Americans occupied whilst he moves forward, conquers the uh, empire he wants in the Soviet Union, which means he's neutralized that threat. And then they can make make sure that they make the West of Europe impregnable. Sure. So he's making trying to make his task in Europe a bit more simple. Yeah. And the final question, it's, is it reasonable to say that the summer of 1942 was a time of success for Germany? Absolutely. You had the fall of Tobruk, which was, we haven't talked about the North African war, but this was going on backwards and forwards. That was going on. 
uh, during this period. And Tobruk, which was a key location in North Africa, fell to the Germans in the summer. Thousands of, of Allied prisoners. It was a deep humiliation for Churchill, a humiliation really following the humiliation of Singapore. He'd, they'd lost Singapore at the beginning of 1942. Again, tens of thousands of, of, of Allied prisoners of war. So this was another example of essentially the, the British having enormous problems standing up to their enemies, British and their allies, it has to be said. Plus, the Germans had just launched this, what was called Operation Blue in the Soviet Union, which was this massive movement right across um, the southern part as, as they push, push, push towards the location of Stalingrad, which was a city on the Volga, now called Volgograd, and also then moving, were planning on going south with another army group to the Caspian Sea to get the oil. So this was this great, great push that was going on. And initially, it was enormously successful. They were capitalizing on, well, I say a place called Kharkov, now called uh, now Kharkiv, I think, it, you know, was under terrible attack from the Russians. But what had happened in May 1942 was that this had been the scene of a gigantic German triumph where Stalin had ordered uh, his troops forward and they'd been caught in a, another pincer movement and hundreds of thousands of, of Red Army troops had been captured. So there was a real sense that everything was everything was shaking and that the Germans were pushing forward right to the river Volga in the Soviet Union in Russia and the city of Stalingrad and things were on the up, absolutely. That was Lawrence Rees in conversation with Rachel Dinning. In the next episode, they'll be discussing the role of the big three, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin in the conflict. So tune back in for that. And in the meantime, you can find plenty more on the Second World War on our website, historyextra.com, where you can also find a three-part masterclass from Lawrence delving into the origins and course of the Holocaust. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.